A few years ago, uh, probably something like 10 years ago, a movie came out called Moneyball. Has anyone seen Moneyball? About uh, Billy Bean, the general manager of the Oakland Athletics, uh, right around the turn of the millennium. And Oakland Athletics have uh, one of the lowest payrolls in all of baseball, where the Yankees were spending well over $100 million every year to field a team. The A's were spending between 30 to $40 million every year. And what that meant is when the A's put together a great team, you know what would happen at the end of the season? The Yankees would take all of their players because they could pay them orders of magnitude more than the A's could. And Billy Bean had to figure out, how am I going to compete? How can I build a team for 30 to $40 million that can take on a $150 million team in the New York Yankees? I'm not going to answer that question for you this morning because that doesn't matter. Uh, what I want to do instead is point out a scene. Billy Bean, he is driven to find the answer to this question. There's a telling moment where he says to one of the players, he says, I hate losing. I hate it. I hate losing more even than I love winning. Isn't that an interesting statement? I don't know if Billy Bean really said that. Brad Pitt did in the movie. But I hate losing. Anyone here like losing? Does that feel good? Like, yes, we lost today. When I was in college, uh, I joined an intramural football team. And uh, I went to Biola University. And in order to go to Biola, you have to sign a contract that says, I'm going to do all the things that Jesus said to do, except when it comes to playing intramural football, where I will be the worst sport I can possibly be. And you know, all these teams, I mean, they, people were practicing multiple times a week, right? And they're running these crazy plays. It's just flag football, intramural flag football. At Biola, uh, sometimes they printed T-shirts. It says, Biola football undefeated since 1908 because we don't have a football team. But we have intramural football teams, and we just kick the snot out of each other every week in the fall. And uh, I, I only played intramural football once because I, I, I like watching football, but I never played it. And you know, I love soccer. That was my game. But I played intramural football once with some guys from my floor. And let me tell you, we practiced like every once in a while. And uh, we, we were just out there to have fun. Right? And every week we would go out and, and we would play teams that hated to lose. And they would just kick the snot out of us. We even had a newspaper article written about us in the school paper about how these guys lose every game, but they're the only ones on the field having any fun. It was amazing. You know what? I think I could live with being known for that. These guys lose all the time, but they seem like the only ones who actually get any enjoyment out of life. And I tell these two stories because I think that Paul, actually here in this passage, uh, we're meeting Paul before he becomes Paul. His name is Saul. 
And it was common for people in Saul's position to have two names, a Greek name and a Hebrew name. Saul, we know, was born in Tarsus, which is a city in modern-day Turkey. It's outside the Holy Land. His family was part of the great Jewish diaspora. And most likely, Saul belonged to a fairly prosperous family because, as we'll find out, he's a Roman citizen. And he was a Roman citizen by birth, which means either he belonged to a free city or his parents purchased his citizenship, or his grandparents at some point. It costs a lot of money. We're going to run into exactly that issue later in the, books of, later in the book of Acts. But uh, Saul in Tarsus and in the Roman world was known as Paul. But in Jerusalem, they called him Saul. That's his Hebrew name. And he, we've met him once or twice before in the book of Acts. The first time we met him, do you remember, uh, it was when Stephen was killed for talking about Jesus to a group of people. And it said that Saul was there approving of everything that they had done. Almost like Saul was the ringleader of what was happening there. And then here in chapter 9, we come back to Saul after a little aside, and we find he's still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. And he went to the high priest, he got letters so he could travel all over Judea, find Christians, and bring them back to Jerusalem, so that he could persecute Christians, so that he could beat Christians up, so that he could kill Christians if he got the opportunity to do so. He is against Christians, just a little bit. He doesn't like them. And I think a big part of the reason why is because Saul is convinced that he is right and he is unwilling to lose. He hates to lose. So he's going to find those Christians wherever they are and whatever they're doing. And he's either going to say, you will either come over to my side or we'll show you what it costs you. You will be the loser. We're not the losers. You are. Now, on his way to Damascus to do all of these things, he has a life-changing experience. Absolutely life-changing. As a matter of fact, Paul is going to come back and retell this story over and over again throughout the book of Acts. By the time you get to the book of Acts, you've heard it so many times that you just start skipping over it and not reading it anymore. He keeps telling that this was the key moment in his life, and here's how it unfolds. He sees a light, a bright light flash around him. It says a light from heaven. And I don't know if that comes from, from later reflection, like, oh, clearly that was a light from heaven, or if Paul realized it at the time. But in either case, a bright light falls on him, and he falls to the ground himself, almost as if the light has weight to knock him down. And he heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? I don't think Saul's confused here. Saul says, who are you, Lord? But I'm pretty sure that's just a defense mechanism for Saul. Because I don't think Saul's persecuting everyone that he can find. He's persecuting the Christians. Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. And I think he was afraid of the answer. But the answer is irresistible in its coming. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Now get up and go into the city, and you'll be told what you must do. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? 
There's a woman named Rosaria Butterfield who wrote a, a spiritual autobiography called The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert, and I highly recommend that book. Uh, Rosaria Butterfield was a professor of literature uh, and post, uh, postmodern literature professor at the uh, University of Syracuse, and uh, she was uh, not a Christian, to put it mildly. And there were a lot of things that might indicate that she wasn't a Christian. Uh, she, like I said, was a postmodernist. If you don't know what postmodernism is, it's a literary movement that's become a philosophy that basically says, if there is any truth out there, which I doubt, we could never know it. Because every story that we tell is really a power play to get people to see the world the way we want them to see it. She was a postmodernist. Uh, she was an openly practicing lesbian and feminist. Now, we have lots of wonderful feminists within the church. We even have people who experience same-sex attraction within the church. But uh, Rosaria Butterfield was saying, no, that's like, I will not be a Christian because of my sexuality. These Christians are bad. And uh, she spent much of her life, the way she describes it, trying to figure out how she could be no, I'm summarizing, but how she could be Saul, how she could go and show the Christians that they were wrong. And then one day she met a Christian pastor who didn't come up and say, uh, you are wrong for 18 reasons and here they all are. And if you want to be right, you're going to come my way. Christian pastor didn't come up to her and say, look at all this horrible, Dan you're such an awful, terrible sinner. No, he, he came up to her and he said, I'd really love to have a conversation with you about these things. And they started, he and his wife started inviting her into their home for dinner. And they just loved her. And yeah, they had disagreements all the time about a lot of different things. But the main thing that they were doing was loving her. And one day, Rosaria Butterfield has realized that Christianity is true. You know how she described that experience? She said it was like a terrible car crash. I think that's what Paul, what Saul is experiencing here. I'm sorry, I keep changing Paul and Saul. They're the same person, okay, just in case we get confused. Saul's never seen a car before. When he meets Jesus on the road to Damascus, he is in a terrible automobile accident. He is in critical care. And his life is hanging in the balance. It was traumatic for him. Not only because of what Jesus actually appearing to him on the road means. Oh no, like I haven't been killing people for God. I have been murdering people because I didn't want to lose. But also because when Saul got up from the ground and opened his eyes, he could see nothing. What an amazing thing. Saul is convinced that he sees truly. And when he meets Jesus, he can't see anymore. God takes away his sight from him. And I'm convinced it's in here not just to tell us, hey, this is, a, uh, this is an amazing miracle that happens. Or, you know, Paul needs uh, Jesus to get his physical sight back. I'm convinced that there is a figurative sense to this as well. It is a physical reality that is manifesting a spiritual reality to him. Saying, you have thought you knew and you understood. You thought you were right, but really you were blind all along. 
So Saul gets up. And by the way, we know this isn't just a private experience for Saul because uh, the men traveling with Saul stood there wondering what's going on because they heard the sound but didn't see anything. Something happened, but it was just for Saul. Now Saul couldn't see, so he was led by the hand into Damascus, and for three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. Now we switch characters for a moment. We've got Saul, Saul the one who is convinced that he is right and finds out that, oh no, I'm wrong. All the good that I was doing was not really good at all. And God calls on a man named Ananias, who's a follower of Jesus in Damascus. Ananias, yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In the vision he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hand on him to restore his sight. And Ananias is saying, oh, I know Saul. I've heard all about him. We knew that he was coming. I know exactly where he is because we've been avoiding that part of town since he got here. Because haven't you heard, God, of all that he's done to your people? And you want me to go to this guy? Now, let's, let's be clear. Ananias, I'm overplaying it just a little bit. Because Ananias does respond very respectfully. Where I'm saying, God, are you serious? Ananias is like, are you sure? I just need to know you're sure before I go. Because he kills people like me. And the Lord said, go. I raised up this man for a purpose. Isn't it amazing? You and I, if there was a man who, or a woman or anybody who went around killing Christians with the blessing of the government and whoever else is in charge, there was a person like that, and then he was disabled in some way, so he couldn't keep doing that work. Would we think, let's find that guy's address and see how we can help? Does that make sense from the perspective of how things work in this world? You know, do you think uh, there, there is this great tradition, or at least there used to be, of outgoing presidents in our country leaving a letter for the incoming president and saying, here's what I learned and here's where the keys are and here's where I put the sugar in the cabinet. You know, just, just giving them, you are president now and I'm going to help you to be that. I don't think that practice continues anymore because we are enemies. There's so many enemies in our culture, aren't there? So I'm not going to help you even a little bit I'm going to win, I'm going to be right, and everything is only going to be good when that's true. Is that the way of Jesus Christ? Jesus sends Ananias to Saul. He says, I have a great future planned for him and for you through him. Oh, man. Say, God, you're crazy. You are crazy. If I go, you better go with me. 
So Ananias went to the house and entered it because God told him to. And he doesn't understand anything that's going on. But he says, I got to go where God sends me. How fascinating. How different from Paul. Paul is convinced that he's right. And so he goes out and does these things. Ananias is convinced that God is trustworthy. And so he goes and he does what he is probably convinced in his heart is not right. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord, Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. I wonder... uh, because, you know, what we've got here is not uh, probably the exact words that were spoken. These are remembered words. They're true to the spirit of what was said without most of the time being a direct quote. Because right? no, one, no one was there with a tape recorder when everyone spoke. No one was taking notes. Like, you know, Ananias, he didn't say, okay, I'm going to, to meet Saul. This is an important moment. Someone bring a, a scroll with them and a pen so we can write down everything that happens. So I wonder if what Ananias said there, I'm sure there's so much more nuance to it, right? Because if it was me and I was speaking to Saul, I'd be like, hey, Saul, Jesus, who appeared to you on the road, who is God, who is the boss, and you have to do everything that he says, especially when he says to leave the Christians alone. You need to do that. And you need to remember, I would have really driven it home. For the sake of my own skin, if nothing else. Don't touch me. God sent me. Do you remember? God sent me. Don't touch me. He has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And right away, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. What does he do? This is the moment of truth, isn't it? Let me tell you something. When you meet Jesus, when you really meet him, and it can be on the road with blinding light and, you know, a voice from heaven. Some people hear sound, but they don't know what's going on. You get up and you're blind and you go, and a prophet has to come to your house and then heal you. Whether you meet him that way or whether you met him in Sunday school when you were five years old and somebody says you need to trust in Jesus because he will take care of you all of your life and into the next. Or if you meet him anywhere in between, if you meet him coming out of drugs, if you meet him coming out of a broken marriage, if you meet him in the middle of life when everything was just fine and then Jesus comes along and wrecks it all, if you really meet Jesus, he will change your life forever. Sometimes when we talk about our faith, I think we make it sound like the important reason you need to know Jesus is because that way, someday, out in the future, you know, whether that's tomorrow or 50 years from now, when you get hit by a bus, because that's always how we say it, you get hit by a bus and you die and you have to stand before God and give an account for yourself. If you know Jesus, you get to go to heaven and you don't go to hell. Do you want to go to hell? No. Choose Jesus. Go to heaven, right? Do we talk about the gospel like that? Let me tell you, that's all true, and it is all missing the point so very much. Because when you meet Jesus, he's not like, okay, I'll see you in 50 years when that bus comes. I'm going to be driving it, or something. He doesn't do that. 
says, when you meet me, your life will never be the same. That's what Paul's baptism means. That's what baptism is all about in the first place. It's the washing away, not just of our sins, but of our old life, of that person we were before we met Jesus, to start to make us brand new. And sometimes, let me tell you folks, that change is a lot more gradual than we'd like it to be. Anyone here been a Christian for 10 years? This is the raise your hand part of the service. Anyone here been a Christian for 20 years? 30 years? 40 years? No, not me. (laughs) 50 years? 60 years? 70 years? 80 years? 90 years? Okay, a long time, right? George, you've been a Christian for the longest out of all of us. Are you all the way there yet? Are, are you completely transformed into the image of Jesus Christ? Still, yeah, that's still happening. Is that ever frustrating to you? Do you ever think, I am 90, 92, right? Yeah, I'm 92 years old. Why am I not all the way there yet? You ever feel that way? Please do, because it's for the purposes of my sermon this morning. (laughs) Yeah, right? And sometimes those transformations are dramatic. People who were on drugs and, and just totally addicted and totally and completely lost in every way, and they weren't confused about it. They're like, I am totally lost. Everything about me is broken. And then Jesus comes into their life, and they meet him, and they are different, and they're not just a little bit different, but it's like, I am no longer addicted. Like, I am transformed today. I'm not all the way there, but I went from, like, here to here. And with some of us, we're like, I've been a Christian for, you know, 40 years or for 92 years. And I started here and I'm just like now here. Why am I not transforming faster? Well, first of all, that's a topic for an in-depth sermon some other time. But let me just tell you that uh, I think the best piece of wisdom I've ever heard on this. Okay, best piece of wisdom I've ever heard. A friend of mine, when we were in seminary, we were talking about exactly this issue. Why aren't we just all like Jesus right now? What's the big holdup, God? Why can't we have it now? And he says, well, I'm pretty sure that if God transformed my life that way, the way that I am right now, I would die. I would die. The shock of it would kill me. There's a scene in C.S. Lewis's The Great Divorce, still my very favorite book about a man who uh, goes to heaven and he is a slave to the sins of lust. Just a slave to it. And it's represented by uh, a lizard that sits on his shoulder whispering into his ear. And when when he arrives in heaven this way, first of all, he can't take the place. He can't stay there the way that he is. And then an angel comes up to him and he says, can I kill that lizard on your shoulder? And the man hems and haws. He says, ah, oh, you know, it's, I know he's not really acceptable up here, but, you know, maybe I'll just go back to the, the other town. And he says, well, I, you know, really, I would like to be rid of him, but, you know, killing him seems pretty extreme. And eventually, yeah, every time the angel kind of steps forward toward him, he says, stop, you're burning me. If you... Kill the lizard, you will kill me. The angel says, it's not so. And the man says, but you're hurting me. And the angel says, I never said it wouldn't hurt. Isn't that amazing? 
I love how God is straight with us. Giving up the bad and the broken things and the sinful things in our life. God never said it wouldn't hurt, did he? He just said that there was good on the other side of that. And finally, this man, this is the part that gets me more than any other in the book. This man says, it would be better to be dead than to keep living like this. And the angel reaches out and he crushes the lizard. And the man screams. And then he grows into something new. He became, in the book, one of the shining people. He was set free from all of the sin and brokenness and evil in the world. Utterly transformed. And where before that happened, he didn't belong in heaven. He couldn't stay. The grass was so real and he was so insubstantial that the grass itself threatened to pierce his feet. But now his feet are tough. They're just as real as the grass and he can run. And what's even more exciting, that lizard that was crushed by the angel is transformed as well. That sin that had control over him becomes his servant. It grows into a great horse. And the man falls at the feet of the angel. And then he leaps up and jumps onto the horse, and the horse takes off, taking him up into the mountains to be with the Lord. You can't meet Jesus and not be changed. Paul could finally see again. The scales fell from his eyes, and he was different. He got up and he was baptized. He ate after not having eaten since that happened, and he regained his strength. And what's he going to do with the rest of his life? We say that when we tell people about Jesus, we're sharing the gospel. Do you remember what that word gospel means? Yeah. Good news. Good news. It was used uh, for many things. One of my favorite uh, illustrations of it is it was used when the emperor had won a great battle that had Uh, that had guaranteed the safety and security of his people. And he would send a messenger out to proclaim the gospel, the good news, that the people were safe. See, Paul doesn't go out. He is different. He's changed. Before, he didn't want to lose. Before, he needed to be right. And now, He just needs everyone to know Jesus because he's found that's where goodness and truth and beauty are. That's what has changed my life. And you know, one of the concrete changes for Paul, remember, he's a Jew. And being a Jew in Paul's day, if you were a faithful Jew, it meant excluding everyone who wasn't Jewish from the most important parts of your life. There was a some ethnocentrism, some xenophobia, even some racism in that outlook on the world. We are the best because God loves us the most, and we don't want anything to do with the rest of you. 
But did you notice uh, the Lord said to Ananias, when God's sending Ananias to Paul to heal him, he says, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to who? To the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. Paul is already transformed. He goes out to tell not just the people he wants to associate with or he's comfortable associating with, but he goes out to tell the people who are farthest away, who he least would have in his previous life wanted to invite to his dinner table. Paul has become somebody because of Jesus who isn't just waiting you know, to go to heaven when he dies, but who says heaven is here on earth when we love people in Jesus Christ. Hey, uh, there was kind of some big news a week or two ago, wasn't there? Uh, about the Supreme Court, and Roe v. Wade, and all of these things. We were talking in session about what we need to say or not say about that. So I'm not going to get into detail, but here's what I do want to say. Uh, what are the tenor of those conversations that are happening in our society right now? With what tone are they being carried out? Yeah, Everyone's really excited to have that conversation, aren't they? to be really nice to each other about it. Oh, I'm so interested in hearing your point of view. No, of course not. Because what are we more concerned with? Winning. Winning. That's the way of Saul. The way of Paul is the way of invitation. Come in. Meet Jesus. And he'll take care of the rest. Now, uh, I said Session's still talking about whether or not we need to say more. Because it's good to be equipped to understand uh, whatever our conviction will be on these different things. I'm not going to give away the farm here right now. But what kind of difference do you think it would make if instead of going out and joining the yelling, we did something else? What if, because I know some of you have already been yelled at. What if when that happened, you said, this is really important to you. Tell me more about that. What if you said, you know, uh, I do have a way of thinking on this issue. Because each of us probably do. I do. But you know what? What would it look like if we figured this out together? Some of that is just something that we need in our day that we might not need as much in other days. Because in the past, I think we knew how to disagree better. But we don't these days. So I think it has to start with, I am willing to hear you. And then we'll see if we meet Jesus on the way. Because who's going to change people's hearts? Is it you? Jesus is the only one who changes hearts. Let me close with this. I was just sharing this with someone this morning. In 1 Corinthians, Paul writes to a church that is deeply divided. And uh, one of their many divisions is that uh, they keep saying, you know, I'm the greatest because the person who brought me to faith is so-and-so. Right? Sounds like a profitable discussion, doesn't it? He said, I'm the greatest because Paul told me about Jesus. And other people said, well, I'm the greatest because Apollos told me about Jesus. And other people said, well, I'm the greatest because Peter told me about Jesus. And Paul says, are you kidding me? Because he's still a pretty fiery guy. If you're a fiery person here this morning, let me tell you, you can be a follower of Jesus Christ because that's what Paul was too. 
and he wrote most of the New Testament. He said, you've got to be kidding me. He said, was Paul crucified for you? Here's what happened. I planted, Paul says, Apollos watered, but God made you grow. So tell me, who matters in that formula? Is it the one who plants? Is it the one who waters? Or is it the one who gives the growth? And I think that if we keep that in mind, it'll help us face these different things, right? It's not about me and the work that I do. It's not my job to change people's hearts. It's my job to plant or to water, to point people in one way or another toward Jesus Christ and then let God figure that out from there because that's more than any one of us can handle or guarantee. Can we do that this week? All right.